On behalf of all of us here at United, we would like to recognize one of our very important passengers, Mr. Brian Coleman, is completing three million miles on this flight with us this evening, and we would all like to congratulate him and thank him for being such a loyal passenger and customer of United Airlines. Thank you, Mr. Coleman. This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, in the news, more states join the Justice Department antitrust suit to block the JetBlue Spirit merger, a Delta flight aborts a takeoff after another jet raises concerns, Shell cancels its plans for a SAF plant in Singapore, Delta exercises its partnership with Lyft, and the FAA warns about summer travel disruptions. We also offer a little bit of aviation career advice, talk more about lap babies on airlines, and we have an Australia Desk report. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 744 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast, he's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hey, it is great to be back here at Aviation Central. Sorry I couldn't make it the last two weeks, all kinds of uh, conflicts, flight scheduling, and things like that. But as always, happy to be here. And we're so glad to have you back. We missed you. Also with us is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot and a CFI, also a former air traffic controller. And, of course, he publishes the JetWine blog. Hey, evening. Um, And uh, it's nice to be here. Uh, It's starting to rain in Chicago. But, hey, listen, I'm sorry. I I realize we're not supposed to talk about the weather. That's right. Nobody cares. I'm sorry. I didn't say that. So, good evening. (laughs) Also with us is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hey, folks. How are Hopefully everyone's doing well. Um, looking forward to this evening. Just the four of us chatting about aviation. Sometimes it's fun not to have a guest, and we can just goof off. And it, it, it's good having the gang together without the pressures of having to behave ourselves. It is different. It really does feel different. And, of course, if you were to hear the pre-show, you would know that that's definitely the case when there's no guest joining us. So let's launch right into some of the aviation news from the past week. Are you guys ready? Ready from the West. Ready from the first state. Midwest is on. First item comes from Skift. California, New Jersey joins suit to block JetBlue and Spirit merger. Well, the attorneys general of California, Maryland, New Jersey, and North Carolina joined the civil, the civil antitrust lawsuit filed by the Justice Department's antitrust division. So those states now join Massachusetts, New York, and the District of Columbia. Now, of course, this civil antitrust lawsuit seeks to block JetBlue's proposed $3.8 billion acquisition of Spirit Airlines. Uh, so the, the, the forces are gathering and, I guess, getting ready to gang up. 
in opposition to this merger. Well, I love it when lawyers take the words of the person that they are suing and, you know, just show them, hey, but this was your point of view. It said that JetBlue warned in 2019 that the power in the hands of a few very deep-pocketed airlines has implications for consumers in the forms of reduced options, high fares, and often poor service. But what we meant was those other guys, not us, and what we're planning to do now. Yeah, yeah. Of course, this would create uh, the fifth largest U.S. airline by passenger volume. Um, anyway, and the com- uh, the combination of those two airlines would represent a domestic market share of about eight percent. So not not huge, uh, but more consolidated than before. So the the Justice Department had issued this uh, amended complaint, forty two page document. Uh, we'll we'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to peruse that, uh, but. They say that uh, Spirit's ultra-low-cost business model has increased competition and and brought low fares to hundreds of routes across the country, making it possible for more Americans, particularly the most cost-conscious, to travel. JetBlue competes hard against Spirit and views it as a serious competitive threat. But instead of continuing that competition, the Justice Department says JetBlue now proposes an acquisition that Spirit describes as a, quote, high-cost, high-fare airline buying a low-cost, low-fare airline. So I don't know how long this is going to take. These things can sometimes take a long, long time to uh, work its way through the the, the legal process. I, I kind of wish my uh, my late father was, was still around because this is what he did. He did antitrust um, actions like this. Sometimes for the Justice Department, and sometimes for the the corporation that was uh, that had a suit filed against it. So I, I can tell you though that there are um, lots of nuances. Uh, there'll be lots of testimony from experts of you know various kinds taking various positions, and all that takes a long time. So I mean I don't know uh, I don't know when this is going to shake out. It could be more than a year. This could take longer than an NTSB investigation. <laughs> well, it says that they're scheduled to go to trial in Massachusetts on October 16th. Of course, that's if it doesn't get postponed, which certainly could happen. That's true. And that's just when, you know, the, the fun and games start. So uh, we'll obviously be watching to see what happens with this. I wonder if they have given Frontier Frontier uh, uh, Spirit merger as much grief as this one. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Probably not, because that would be a low cost buying a low cost. Right. Yeah. Two smaller players rather than a smaller and a little bit larger one. But isn't Spirit larger than JetBlue? Um, uh, you know, I don't know. I just know that I heard. What do I know? Uh, that the that uh, JetBlue wanted this merger because they want the. Uh, airplanes and the crews more than they care about anything else. Yeah, we talked about that, um, geez, I don't know, months ago. Um, yeah, and there, there really was a lot of speculation at that time anyway that the the, the biggest prize for JetBlue is, is the aircraft because of, uh, you know, the acquisition costs and the acquisition lead time to build the fleet. If you want to grow your fleet, the time was, was good for, uh, you know, for an acquisition like this. Time was good to uh, pick up a fleet or increase your fleet size this way. 
Um, of course, you know, economic conditions change, and the longer this drags out in the DOJ case, you know, that offers an opportunity or it offers the possibility that JetBlue's a business case for this acquisition could change. Uh, so if it goes on long enough uh, and conditions do change enough, you know, they might just say, all right, well, forget the whole thing. Who knows? Who knows? Well, I looked it up. In 2022, JetBlue revenues were a little over $9 billion and Spirit was a little over $5 billion. Okay. Yeah, but see, Max was not clear on that. He just he just said one was bigger than the other. <laughs> I mean, that could have meant many things by well, fleet I size. Thinking, by, I was thinking size and size of the size of number of aircraft and how many um, routes they have. I mean, it seems to me Spirit yeah, actually, would be a that's lot bigger. Kind of, it was kind of the route structure I was thinking too. But then I remembered too, JetBlue goes to uh, goes to Europe, uh, which uh, which of course Spirit does not. Well, certainly you'd expect proportionally that uh, Spirit's going to have more planes and you know more seat miles because they charge so much less, you know, for them. Yeah, right, right. All right, next story um, is from kbtx.com. Boy, here we go again, <laughs> Max. Delta flight aborts takeoff as another aircraft crosses runway. Oh, my. Yeah, this is a really weird uh, story. Uh, just comes from a day or so ago down in the— New Orleans, and typically when we've had these stories in the past, the airplane is crossing the runway, and so they abort the takeoff. This is one where the plane apparently didn't actually cross the runway, uh, but the controller was concerned that maybe he was going to or that he was a little too close. Uh, in fact, uh, I believe uh, I listened to the uh, the ATC audio, and the controller said something along the lines of, you know, he looks a little close to the hold line. And I thought, wow, that's <laughs> that's usually where people, where airplanes are, is close to the hold line. <laughs> and I guess you'd have to kind of look at it and see, well, was he still moving rapidly as he approached that hold line? Or was he moving very slowly? Was he, you know, stationary? But, you know, the consequences were you know, more than you might think. This aircraft was speeding down the runway uh, when this Learjet, you know, apparently got a little too close for comfort, even though it was probably, you know, well where it should have been. They aborted the takeoff apparently at high speed. They uh, then sat, uh, you know, for 45 minutes before returning the gate to let the jet brakes cool down. They say passengers could hear the thump of shredded rubber from the plane's tires that were damaged during the emergency stop. And, of course, the uh, airline had to rebook these uh, you know, people on a, on a different flight. So I'm kind of torn. You know, on the one hand, I think it makes sense for controllers to call, call for airplanes to stop, to abort takeoff whenever they think there's a problem. On the other hand, it doesn't sound like there actually was a problem. So, yeah, I guess on balance you would say, okay – Probably the right call if you're not sure, if you're in doubt. But it's the first time I've kind of heard of an abort where the uh, where there actually wasn't a, a foul present. There actually wasn't someone who had crossed the runway. What yeah, did you, did give, you give? Oh, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, given the last four months in this year, I would say it was probably a you know better better safe than sorry kind of overreaction for the ATC. Well, I, I wonder, did this happen at night, Max? I didn't listen to the tapes, I, but... I wondered that as well, because certainly it would be more difficult to you know, see exactly where the aircraft was at night. Uh, so that's certainly possible. 
Well, because you you mentioned something that that I think is really important. I mean, when you're when you're watching from, and again, one thing we never know is how far. You know, we talk about you know the airplane was this close to the runway, except that the person working local control in the tower might be a mile away, and and so unless they have binoculars on them or the uh, ASDX radars working at that airport. Um, we don't know what the visual picture looked like, but if the air, if the Lear was moving, and there, I think I saw a comment in that or another story that said they thought the Lear pilot was a little confused about where he was going on the ground, and that instantly sends up little antennas to a controller's brain going, eh, hey, and they'll yell, hey, watch the Lear jet. I don't think he knows where he's going, you know, and people would say, oh, he's getting close to the runway, it might have been, uh, you know, a, a good call. But again, I don't know if he was moving. However, from the cockpit side, a high-speed abort is a very, very dangerous uh, maneuver. Uh, it's it's not something that uh, uh, gets presented in a training scenario uh, at, at flight safety or CAE at, at all very often, not realistically. I mean, uh, they might give you an abort when you're uh, before you hit V1. So you might be at 70 knots or something, you know, which is still pretty quick. I mean, but but not like 125. Uh, and and again, when they they slam on, you know, the auto brakes come on during an abort, and and that is like both people climbing on the binders just hanging on, saying, I don't care what happens. And the anti-skid is just, you know, as the brakes try to cope with, you know, you hear all the vibrating. And uh, it, it sounds like it destroyed the the, the tires on this airplane, uh, which I'm not sure why. Again, I, I again, maybe corporate does it differently than the airlines do. But if we'd have had a high speed abort, we'd have gone back to have somebody check the tires because we would have been concerned that uh, that had had occurred. Um, but uh, I, you know, again, everybody does it a little differently. But again, yeah, okay. The good news is nobody got hurt, but this cost somebody some serious bucks, and uh, the Learjet pilot got a slap on the wrist for maybe getting too close to the runway or moving a little too quickly as he was headed towards where he was going or, you know, I, I don't know. But but again, high-speed aborts, very dangerous uh, maneuvers. The Aviation Herald says uh, this occurred at 7.45 p.m. local time. And wait, I'm sorry. Uh, Tom, uh, 7.45 so, p.m. So that, well, that's kind of... 7.45. Yeah, it'll be dark. Yeah, be dark. it'll be dark. So yep. yeah, that that throws another monkey wrench in the uh, in the deal. Yep. Flight Aware said it was scheduled to leave at 7.33 p.m. on Friday night. And Rob, I was going to make the same point you made, which was about people being, uh, our controllers being possibly a mile away. I remember when we had the Air Canada incident in San Francisco, I measured it and it was about a mile from the tower to uh, where they would be landing on the taxiway. And how you tell from a mile whether somebody is lined up with a taxiway versus a runway, mm, pretty pretty near impossible to do that visually, I would imagine. Well, you know, the, the, the only way you know is that you've watched hundreds of airplanes on final for what I forgot what runway that is. Is it two three, four, something at at Frisco or something? Yeah, but that's two and, and you go, 
you know, something doesn't look right about where that guy is and where he should be for this particular part of the approach. And, uh, it, it, you know, again, were they watching the, the ASDI radar at the time? Maybe, maybe not. Um, there's just, because, you know, when you see the same thing over and over and over and over again, night after night after night, you go, yeah, yeah, that looks, yeah, he's clear to land. All right, that's fine. And and you miss things. It's, I mean, controllers do it. Pilots do it. It's just, it's that complacency issue where, where you know, that's a problem. Yeah, I, I said initially that I was kind of of two minds about this, but you know, I, I guess I have to come down on the side of the controller and say, yeah, if in doubt, call for the abort. Even even if it wasn't a correct call, that's the safe call. Even if it results in you know some money spent on tires, you know that probably makes sense. Now, what I think it probably did, which we haven't talked about, is it probably shaved a, a year or two off the life of the pilots. I mean, I would imagine that, and I'm quite serious about. It, I mean that. To me, would be a little traumatic to be, you know, at 100 knots and having to do an abort. And, 125. You know, they said it was oh, 125 I had, knots. Hadn't seen the numbers. Yeah, that. That yeah, was, even more so. I mean, that's that was that's, almost that's, lift off. I mean, yeah, you, your heart's going to leap into your throat as you're having to do that because you're yeah. going to be wondering all kinds of things like, hey, are we going to be able to stop before the end of the runway? And yeah, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I'm happy that yeah, everyone survived, but oh. Talk about yeah, unnecessary, well, potentially unnecessary trauma. But the pilots, uh, I mean, they probably didn't know why the takeoff was aborted unless they happened to see the Learjet and sort of have the same kind of reaction. So, I mean, not only is there the, you know, the physics of stopping this A321 barreling down the runway, but if you don't know why or what the situation is or what else is coming at you or, or any of that, I mean, that just really got to compound the stress, I would think. Boy, I hope that the pilots in that situation react just like people are trained to react in, uh, in the service, you know, follow the order. Yeah. <laughs> if it were me, I wouldn't even worry about the why I'd be worried about the what, which is how do I get this thing stopped immediately? We'll figure out the why later. Someone said, stop, boy, I'm going to put everything I can into stopping. It's like when they call for an ejection, I guess, you know, the guy that calls eject eject the other guy doesn't usually say well now can you tell me what's going on I, i'm is this really I, I guess necessary? i didn't quite notice the you know because by then you might be dead i don't know but i've never had a bail out of an airplane so what do i know i had one situation like that years ago when i was uh, teaching somebody instruments and we were uh, very close to the airport we were down low and I, at one point i said i have the controls and he said why <laughs> it's like it was all I could say because there's an airplane headed right at us. Uh, and literally, I had a hard time, you know, getting the words out. But it was one of those situations where, yeah, I, I, I think he thought that somehow I was questioning his skills and ability. No, that's not the only reason people say, I have the controls. It could be because you're trying to save your life. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, Shell, as in the uh, oil and energy company, had announced in 2021 that it was going to build a biofuel project in Singapore. And now we see from aerotime.aero that Shell cancels sustainable aviation fuel and base oil plant projects in Singapore. Now, this plant was uh, planned to produce 550,000 tons of SAF per year, and they envisioned 
that being used in um, markets in Asia, the major Asian hubs, places like Hong Kong, uh, Singapore's airport, and so forth. Now, when they made that announcement in 2021, Shell did say that they were going to make their final investment decision by early 2023. Well, it's early 2023, and Shell has decided that they're not going to uh, move move forward with that because, in part, they don't they don't see the demand in Asia. Uh, the article talks about um, that, unlike in some other parts of the world, there's no mandate for airlines to use SAF in Asia, and customers there don't want to pay the premium for for SAF. And so, you know, without a demand for it, Shell doesn't have a, a motivation to invest in producing it. Um, so, um, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's a business decision that makes sense, but the reason it makes sense is, I don't know, kind of sad. Even with the demand from what we hear here in the States, it's still going to be a tough bite of the That'd be a bite off of the something, but uh, to because the the price of SAF when it really becomes available, which is just starting to now, it's it's a pretty sizable premium to buy the SAF fuel. So, uh, you know, they're saying, well, yeah, we want to do right by the environment, but Jesus, this is going to make operating this airplane a whole lot more expensive. Um, I, 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 that, that I'd be torn if I were running the department. I mean, uh, telling the boss, uh, well, yeah, mm -mm. I, I don't know what I'd do with that. Now, Shell is building biofuel plants in other parts of the world. We see in, in Rotterdam, they're building a, a plant that'll have a capacity of 820,000 tons per year. And that overall, I guess, I guess worldwide, Shell is looking to produce about two million tons of SAF a year by 2025, which is not that far into the future. Um, so that's um, you know that part of it's good. Uh, the uh, Asian demand or demand in the Asian market is is just not there yet, unfortunately. All right, uh, moving on. We had uh, an article from View from the Wing. And uh, Delta, well, I didn't, I guess I really wasn't aware that Delta use uh, or has a partnership with Lyft, you know, the ride-sharing company. But, uh, Max, they brought that into play um, recently in Detroit. Yes, you and I had the same reaction. I wasn't aware of it either, though it probably kind of makes sense. You know, if I think back to uh, some of the early flights that I made as a as a teenager, I remember being put on a bus because the plane didn't land at Elmira. It landed in Syracuse, I think. And so they put us on a bus to, you know, get us back where we were supposed to be. But the story is about a Delta Airlines passenger who arrived in Detroit on Friday but couldn't get home all the way to Cincinnati because of thunderstorms. Apparently the flight had been canceled. So instead, they rebooked passengers on short-distance final segments using Lyft. Now, they don't say whether they put five people in the car all going to Cincinnati, which wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I would imagine that if they've got multiple people, they probably put more than one person in the, the Lyft to go there. Uh, and they point out that uh, Cincinnati is a 229-mile flight driving 
would be about 250 miles. Google estimates three hours and 39 minutes, which actually, when you consider the time spent with a layover boarding the aircraft. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty good trade-off. Might have gotten there at about the same time, though I'm, I'm sure they, they lost time uh, with the arrangements for the uh, the lift. Uh, but they point out also that it's a seven to eight hour round trip for the driver, uh, which uh, you know would be pretty bad. I one time had a, a lift where we had an aircraft that was stuck in Stockton. And so we needed a lift to take us about 90 minutes back to our home base. And unfortunately, it was commute hour. So he was then going to have a four-hour return trip. Uh, and it wasn't going to get you know compensated very well for that. So I gave him the maximum tip that we could give, which was, was $50. But even, you know, divided by four hours, that's not a whole lot of, you know, tip for his time. I think he decided that he was just going to wait in the San Francisco area until the traffic died down a little bit. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm guessing there are uh, more and more of these uh, partnerships and people should just expect that if your flight is canceled, you probably ought to be walking over the customer service desk and going, hey, put me in a lift. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't you love to know, though, what uh, were this, the, these passengers that got into the lift car were seated on that airplane, whether they were in business class or economy. I'm just curious myself. Uh, but I, I, I thought what was interesting, too, with that story is I always like to, to look at the comments. And uh, some of the comments were pretty interesting. One that said, uh, you know what, I pay for an airline flight. I expect an airline flight. Delta losers or something like that. I thought, okay, Mother, you know, sit in the friggin' terminal for six hours waiting right, exactly. for somebody to do something. Uh, I mean, I'd have gotten in the car in a, in a heartbeat, uh, say Milwaukee to Chicago or vice versa. Uh, but then I, I, I looked, uh, I looked, and there were a, a couple of uh, Lyft and Uber drivers that responded, and they said that um, the drivers know what their cut is going to be on a trip like that. And they don't have to take it. Um, now, again, I guess it always opens up the possibility that, hey, if I go to that distance, I, I might get a trip out of Cincinnati back somewhere else, and I kind of work my way back to uh, Detroit or something. I, I don't know, I, but um, maybe that's a, a pipe dream. But uh, but again, I, I always love to see what people have to say with these completely inflexible airlines. Yeah, I know. Because I, I, when I read the story, it it sounded great. It sounded like, okay, um, Delta had this weather issue, and I don't think they had to do anything at all. Not if they're like other airlines. It's a weather delay, right? What, what can you do? But they they put at least some of these passengers into, into lifts. I would be incredibly grateful for that, some uh, I think there was another commenter who complained about it being Lyft. They should have, you know, should have rented a car for this. Like, really, with a Lyft, all I have to do is just walk out and get in, and I'm on my way. If Delta had uh, arranged for a rental car for me, then I would have had to go. You know, I mean, that process would have taken a while. Then I would have had to get to the, you know, to the counter and all that processing, and then I would have to return the car. When I got home to Cincinnati, or wherever. right, and it and it doesn't it doesn't get returned at your house. Yeah, you have exactly. to get it someplace. I mean, well, you know, people bitch. I'm sorry, people complain they complain about about it. a lot of things. Yeah, but I think Delta. This was a great. Um, I think Delta did a great thing. 
I like it. If I were in that situation, I would definitely take the car option. I've had too many times where, uh, you know, connection has not made it for whatever reason. And I'm stuck paying for the hotel room. And then the flight they give me is at five 30 in the morning. It's like, Oh great. So I get five and a half hours of sleep and I arrive late at my destination. Uh, it's just, I, I hate that. In fact, I've just yesterday booked a ticket for my, uh, next trip to, uh, Tennessee, I'll be doing some vision jet training here within a couple of weeks. And historically, I used to always, you know, fly the the connecting flights to get to Knoxville. And I've gotten smarter. So now I take the one and only direct flight to Knoxville, uh, pardon me, to Nashville, and then drive the two and a half hours. And it's a pleasurable drive. And it certainly beats, you know, the, the risk of being stuck overnight with, uh, you know, the hotel and then getting up at crazy hours and having no sleep. So anyway, I'm looking forward to uh, a nice non-connecting flight. Yeah. I hate connections. Yeah, it pays to plan your itinerary that so that it's got some flexibility built in, or or you you can reduce risks by doing like what you did, Max. Or Max, uh, this is this is coming from someone who tows his hotel around. <laughs> I know. <laughs> See, that's that's I I completely avoid airport delays and and flight delays. I mean, is anybody else a little? surprised or just crazy about the fact that the guy started the airplane geeks and he doesn't really like to fly. I, we didn't call this the airplane unless you really like to drive geeks. Well, we could have called it the John Madden show, you know, if we yes. want to talk about people that are scared of flying or don't want to fly. <laughs> we know you're not, we know you're not scared. No, I'm not scared of it. I put in my miles while I was, before I retired, I, you know, Good point. A lot of lot of miles. I was a uh, pretty proficient road warrior when it came to you know uh, <laughs> getting home, picking up the suitcase, getting to an airport, and you know being on another continent on short notice. And actually, when that does happen, it makes someone else's idea of hey, let's go away for the weekend, and we can get a really cool hotel room in so and so, and you go. Oh, yeah, that's real exciting. I can't think of anything I'd rather do than fly somewhere and go to a hotel. Yeah. If you have a go bag, you know you've been traveling too much. Yeah. I want to find out how how extreme you were as a road warrior. In the early days of Internet, did you – Dis- disassemble the uh, the phone connections in the hotel room and use alligator clips so that you could connect your modem directly to the wires and uh, get on the internet. I did in Italy, in Naples, on on a business trip, and it was my first it was my first trip to Italy, and I was unprepared for analog telephones. I didn't expect uh, that it would uh, um, it would be that way. I was expecting the you know the 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 jacks. Um, so I'm in this in this uh, hotel with this analog phone, and I, I was definitely one of those people that uh, connected way before m- most of my uh, peers did. It was kind of the ch- always the challenge. I did have you know alligator clips. And I did have sort of the requisite um, um, items, but I wasn't sure which colored wires I needed to connect to. And of course, without internet. I had no way to tell, you know, to discover that. So uh, I had to call back to the U.S. to somebody's kid 
to ask him which you know which wires, what colors do I want to uh, connect to? And then I had to assume that whatever the standard for you know color coding was in the U.S. was the same in Italy, and thank goodness it was. But yeah, I did that. There was um, a few early trips to um, to China in Beijing when the internet was. Still, I know we're going way off topic here. When when the internet was illegal, you were not allowed to get onto the internet in China. But CompuServe had a node in oh, Beijing, yeah. and I knew how to tunnel through CompuServe to get to the to get to the internet. So here I am in communist <laughs> China, sitting in the great uh, the Great Wall, Hilton, I think it was. With all the lights turned down low, and I'm connecting to the internet and wondering if the, uh, you know, the, the People's Liberation Army was going to come pounding on the door while I was uh, accessing my com- uh, company the email. The People's Republic. Uh, yeah. China. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Whoever those. And and they have a word for people like you too. It's called spy. I know. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, did, did some crazy stuff. Well, that's good. So you definitely earned the title. Geek. So congratulations. And, and by the way, I, I did the same thing. I would disassemble the, the wires. It's the challenge. Yeah. yeah. And of course, we, we were doing it with 4K modems. It was like, oh. My oh, God. I know. It's so slow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Oh. That, that was a cool. It, those are the cool days. You've got mail. It's hard yeah. to believe that was yeah. just 20, 25 years. You know, yeah. it wasn't that long ago. No, no. All right. Hey, we have one more story uh, for the news segment. This is from Travel Pulse. FAA warns of air traffic controller shortage ahead of summer travel season. Oh, boy. Here we go. Understaffed. Now it's the uh, uh, the FAA, the controllers. Uh, this is in the uh, New York airspace, I guess. Where The New York Tracon. Yeah, the approach control for the New York area. So I was confused when I read the story. I, I didn't understand why are they warning us about short controllers. Rob, can you give us any insights? <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Stand up to the mic, Rob. <laughs> okay, kids. The gloves are coming off. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Wow, that was that was just brilliant, Trescott. <laughs> you know. I, yeah, okay. Well, he, anyway. Wait, wait, wait. He's speechless? I don't believe yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> I I uh, laugh at a lot of things, but not when somebody calls me short. I didn't call you short. I just said you might be able to provide some insight. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I took that as a vertical challenge uh, issue. Um, hmm. Did I miss something? Uh, okay. Uh, no, I... I I, I think it's interesting that they're warning us now. It's almost like uh, uh, American or Delta or even Southwest saying, hey, you know, in July, we might be a little short of people. And so if you get a delay, don't say we didn't warn you because uh, we did tell you it was a, a possibility. Uh, and because um, uh, New York Tracon is not the only Tracon in the world or in the country that's short staffed. Uh, I mean, I know for a fact that the uh, the Tracon here in Chicago is also short-staffed, except they didn't make it into the story. Uh, those people have been working six-day weeks for quite a long time. And having worked six-day weeks in a, in ATC, I can tell you, it's, it's pretty damn exhausting. Um, 
And he'd say, well, you know, we're going to pay you great. I, I don't want the pay. I just want some rest. Uh, and uh, But w- when you get into it, you, you do it for so long, and you just sit down and go, okay, I'm fine. I'm here. Let's get on with the shift. Okay. What's coming? Uh, you know, okay. And, and you don't even realize how fatigued you are. It's like flying. Max is the only guy I know that can fly 22 hours a day and, and get an hour worth of sleep and get up and have coffee and go. I don't know how he does it, but, uh, you know, well, it's not that bad, but, but that's what, uh, that's what, that's what Brian is doing with, with his running around the world. I would certainly not be interested in, you know, being on airlines uh, that long. The, the numbers in the story really stood out. They said that the New York Tracon staffing levels are at 54% of what's actually needed, but that's not bad. But well, but they compared that to the average of all the other ATC centers, 81%. That says we are massively understaffed uh, in air traffic control. And of course, what they're trying to do is to get the carriers to reduce the number of airplanes coming in and out over the New York area this summer. So they're encouraging them to use larger airplanes to the extent possible on flights between New York and DC and uh, other places. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is interesting that uh, the agency is basically you know, trying to get ahead of this in front of it and say, hey, we've got a problem and we need some help from the airlines. Otherwise, it may be pandemonium this summer. But of course, what summer isn't pandemonium when it comes to air traffic in recent years? Wait, wait, hang on. Ding, 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 ding. FAA just realized they're short of air traffic controllers. Oh, my gosh. What a revelation. Uh, it was like when they remember we talked. I think it was last week about the uh, uh, the cockpit voice recorder issue having been on the FAA's plate for four or five years after the NTSB uh, uh, promoted that concept, and uh, it was only when it really made big headlines during the summit. Uh, the uh, safety summit a few weeks ago that FAA suddenly said, yeah, yeah, let, let's do that. Let's uh, let's put 25 hour uh, cockpit voice recorders. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. FAA is not known for uh, incredible planning skills. They're, they're just not. Uh, now, maybe every other government agency is about the same. I don't know. But, you know, I don't think we civilians interact with as many uh, uh, other agencies as we do with FAA because so many people travel. Uh, I, I can't, maybe customs and immigration, maybe that might be similar. I don't know, but, uh, but certainly this is, this is not rocket science because uh, F- FAA is known actually since 1981 <laughs> after the PATCO strike that it didn't quite come out the way that they had hoped, and it's always been kind of up and down. Uh, and uh, so, again, this shouldn't be any great surprise, and I'm sure it's not the last thing we're going to hear about it. Let me just mention that my personal experience with ATC is fantastic. And I, I really want to take a moment just to thank all of the controllers who are you know, working six-day weeks and you know, even those who might not because they do an amazing job. They provide a level of service that I think is unprecedented compared to other – well, even companies, but certainly other government agencies. Uh, the, the service that I get from ATC is spectacular. Oh, sure. Uh, We're not just, talking about yeah, yeah. Uh, about service because the controllers don't care. I, I, if, it, I, if that sounded like that, that's not what I meant. But right, right. No, saying, no, I didn't. 
I'm yeah. just okay. no, it didn't sound like that at all, Rob. Okay. But I but I did want to add that, you know, I I'm sorry that they're having to deal with, you know, problems that their management hasn't been able to solve, you know, for them. And I'm sure there are all kinds of constraints, uh, funding issues and hiring issues and you know, you name it. And I'm sure, you know, management is you know, doing the best they can. But uh, anyway, hang in there, people. Hopefully this will get better. And please understand, we love you and we understand that you're going through some, you know, very trying times. And that was Max Trescott, who operates regularly from Papa Alpha Oscar Airport <laughs> in the Silicon Valley. Yeah. And, and I'll throw out the apology, Rob. I know it was a, it was a cheap joke, but no. I, 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 I that, thought... Oh. Come on. I thought maybe I could get away with it because we're friends, but if this is the end of our friendship, I'm, I'm really it, sorry. It, well, it, it probably is unless that that bag of cash that we so relish here in Chicago shows up on my doorstep in the next few days. Uh, I, I could be, you know, I could be happy. That's how things work in Chicago, isn't it? Uh, it, it is, yes. In fact, this is a big deal this week. To, in fact, tomorrow is mayoral elections in Chicago, so God knows what's going to happen Uh I, I don't know, maybe nothing, but imagine that. the Okay, I'm not going to say that because I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. I didn't yeah. <laughs> so cut it out from here. All right. Okay, well, you know, this last week we received a couple of um, emails from listeners that were kind of notable in some respect. One that we want to talk about is from Celeste, who is, well, kind of looking for some career advice uh, in terms of an aviation career. Uh, Celeste wrote to us and said, uh, I'm a university student in Canada, about a year out from completing a degree in electrical engineering, a minor in GIS sensing, and I've always had a big interest in aviation. I went into engineering with the hope to end up in the aviation industry eventually. I worked for Bombardier last summer and realized how much I genuinely despise office jobs, which is, you know, that's fine, uh, which has proceeded to turn me off the path of becoming an engineer. Saying that, I've always wanted to get my pilot's license and having flown a Cessna 150, there's no doubt that I love flying with all my heart. Now, she says, I'm from a small town in B.C., Canada and don't know many people in the aviation industry, and uh, I'm not sure how to go about getting more involved with it after school. The idea of getting my pilot's license is something I dream of, but I don't have the money to do. I don't necessarily have commercial airline pilot at the top of my list, but the idea of being a flight instructor or flying smaller planes for remote companies uh, I find extremely enticing. I'm also very interested in more hands-on jobs, such as aircraft maintenance or mechanic kind of positions. In a dream world, becoming a test pilot is the irrational job I would love to do more than anything. So uh, she says, or she's looking for some advice regarding how to go about funding uh, her pilot's license or places in Canada that we might recommend looking into after finishing university. She also asks, as far as the industry goes with maintenance and mechanic kind of positions, are there many opportunities there? Also, do most people obtain diplomas, go right into apprenticeships, other kinds of niche positions um, or, or positions she might use to uh, utilize part uh, of her degree that aren't specifically engineering? 
and just sort of any general advice you would give a young woman on a budget hoping to find her way into the aviation industry. So uh, a lot of good questions there, a lot of interesting questions there. And uh, I know, I know, Rob, you you uh, emailed her with a little bit of advice. Well, okay, a little bit. Are, are you talking about the quality of the information, or are you talking about the number of words versus what my cohort gave her, which was— You mean the size? Uh, you know— <laughs> oh, I just realized, Max, it looks like I didn't copy you on my response to her. My apologies. I, oh, okay. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll shoot that over. You can take uh, take a look. But yeah, Rob, go ahead and t- tell tell tell, uh, yeah, tell yeah. us about the stuff you. Uh, yeah, I uh, no, I in fact, I I think I I landed on the part that uh, uh, she said maybe I wasted my time getting an EE degree, and I said no. Listen, first of all, you you never wasted your time. You're in university. One of these days, you'll be absolutely glad that you have that degree, even if it doesn't exactly match up with where you see yourself headed at the moment. Uh, But I also wanted her to know that there are gazillion resources out there if people will put in the time to, uh, to, to seek them out. And I mentioned women in aviation who, uh, I'm sorry, women in aviation is a, uh, of course, an international group that has honest to goodness, more scholarship opportunities than any organization I've seen for people in aviation. And it's not just pilots, uh, uh, mechanics, air traffic controllers, uh, dispatchers, you name it, uh, as does NBAA. And uh, and then, of course, Max mentioned uh, some other organizations in the, uh, I think you gave her what, about 12 pages of resources, Max, I think, or something. No, but you, you mentioned other uh, uh, scholarship opportunities, but we wish that we had had this kind of uh, uh, system back when uh, you know I was learning to fly and back when Max was learning to fly because it, it just really, they, they did not exist uh, then. But they're out there. You just need to spend the time to... Um, uh, to, to research them. And yes, it, it can be a lot of work, but the only thing I actually wondered about is that she said he, she had an EE degree like you did, Max. Is that a, is that technically called an excellent engineer degree or <laughs> what does that stand for? Maybe I, no, I, I think, I think she's a year or two into her uh, degree program. I don't, that's what you know, she is uh, studying along with uh, something else, which she said was uh, GIS sensing, as I recall, which would, um, Those are stomach would, issues, Im- right? Which would be Im- no, it's uh, imaging uh, from satellites and and stuff like that. Um, There's a lot of companies that look in the drone industry are looking for that. Oh yeah, yes. My subtle advice to her is it's, she can't do it this year, but she can do it in 2024. And since she's in British Columbia, what I suggest she do does is go to the Vanderhoof International Air Show in British Columbia <laughs> in 2024. Yeah. And network there. That would be my suggestion. Yeah, networking is a big is a big part of this too, I think. Um and along with that is mentoring. You know, if you're exploring a, a career like this, if you can locate a uh, you know, a really good compatible mentor, somebody that can that you can talk to and uh, you know, bounce ideas off of and Get their advice and, and counsel and so forth. Uh, that's uh, that that can be extremely valuable, and a lot of these organizations can can offer that. 
Well, but you know what I have found? I, I've worked with um, some of the young professionals from the NBA group that has the uh, has that, and also when I was still at Northwestern, and you would talk about uh, networking and and uh, all those you know those kinds of opportunities, and and these people are twenty one years old, twenty two, and they go, yeah, I, I don't know what, because nobody teaches them about they, they ought to have a a uh, a week long summer uh, workshop on networking, not just how to do it, but what the hell the point is and why it's important for uh, young people to know this. And uh, I mean, to this day, when I I meet people, like, hey, have you got a card? Uh, you know, and I I always get it, and it's amazing how. Uh, in fact, I'm looking in my desk as we're talking here, but I've got. Stacks of cards that I put in my phone eventually, but to this day I still. Oh, I remember I met this guy at NBAA or at Sun and Fun or at Oshkosh, and he might be exactly the person you're looking for or I'm looking for on a story. and And it's amazing how valuable those are. But if people don't give you the the kind of the why and how it all fits into the grand picture, uh, they go. Yeah, I don't, yeah, networking. Okay, I don't know. That means you stand around somewhere and have a drink with somebody, right? Or, or a bunch of people. I don't know. And and then I don't know what to say anyway. So, yeah. Let me mention a couple of things that that I sent. I I mentioned that uh, Carl Valeri, who we've had on the show, Ooh, yeah. has a list of aerospace scholarships, and that used to be a book that you would buy, but of course the. It got out of date quickly, so he's put it online. I think it's $10, and I don't know if that's per month or per year or whatever. But I said, commit to spending a few hours every week applying for all the scholarships for which you appear to qualify. And yeah, I think people may feel like, oh, scholarships, that's like winning the lottery. Uh, yeah, a lottery where there's a much better chance of winning than the lotteries that they have you know, run by the states. Uh, I know many people who have uh, gotten scholarships, uh, which tells me that you know a, a significant percentage of people who apply get some kind of scholarship. But you got to put the work in, uh, and you know spend the time in applying that. But I also said in addition to that, she's going to want to build up a war chest of money because it's unlikely that she'll get enough scholarships to cover all of her training expenses. Though it could happen. Uh, and so I suggested that she might want to look at a, a well-paid summer internship because a lot of engineering internships actually pay pretty well, which is surprising because you know, the word intern sometimes becomes synonymous with, hey, free cheap labor that we can bring in you know, to work for our company for the summer. A lot of interns, I think, really you know, get taken advantage of, but a lot of the engineering companies don't take advantage of them and do pay. So she might look at that as one way to build up some money. But also said she ought to go out and find a, a local airport. And an easy way to do that is just to go out to skyvector.com, which has got all of the um, maps, all of the sectional charts. And it's really easy to find out where is there an airport near me by looking at the map near you. And, of course, what you really want in general would be one of the smaller airports. And then I said you can learn more about the airport by going out to airnav.com. And what you're looking for at airnav.com is to see, hey, is there a flight school at my airport or, you know, what 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 is there? Because some airports have almost nothing going on and others, you know, have something going on. So you, you, the first one you want to go to is one that's got something uh, going on. But there are also opportunities, even if you don't go out to um, – 
small airports to go to the big commercial airports, but go over to the general aviation side, the other side of the airport, not where the airline terminals are, and find one of the FBOs such as Signature. These are the companies that handle the needs of business jets and other GA aircraft that are landing at the airport, and they have a need for people, uh, both people working at the desk, people working out on the line, directing uh, jets in and out, people pumping the fuel and stuff like that. Uh, I also mentioned that it's not too early to start reading and just becoming familiar with uh, you know, the flying. Uh, the FAA has wonderful handbooks available, uh, and they're free PDFs that you can download. And I mentioned two of them, the Airplane Flying Handbook and the Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge. If you start reading those two, then you're going to be more knowledgeable. So when you head out to the airport, you can kind of understand a little bit of the language people are speaking, understand a little bit about the industry. And my observation is that people are more likely to hire or help people who've put in the time who already can speak the language of aviation. If you come out and you're just kind of clueless, well, it shows you haven't done much homework and people are probably willing to, you know, aren't as willing to invest as much, you know, time with, you know, somebody doing that. Um, she also mentioned aircraft maintenance. There is definitely a shortage of mechanics now. Uh, and so I would think uh, flight schools would be very interested in paying someone to assist their mechanics. Uh, and I also mentioned anybody who knows something about electronics would be a bonus because you know, my experience is a lot of airplane mechanics know a lot about engines, but they know proportionally less about electronics. So I think an intern with a background in electronics could probably be pretty helpful around there. So anyway, that's just some of the stuff that, that I mentioned. Um, she also asked about four-year degrees, and I said, yeah, when hiring slows down, Airlines are going to filter out the people that don't have four-year degrees, so it probably helps to to have one. And if you end up with a furlough at some point in your career, it kind of helps to have a degree so you can find some other job to help pay the rent while you're waiting to find another flying job. Um, but anyway, those are some of the things I threw out. I think that uh, she's uh, got a lot of um, you know interesting opportunities. It's just a question of researching them and starting to figure out, hey, which, which ones do you want to go pursue first? Yeah, sounds like good advice. And if any of you listening, uh, any of you uh, Canadians listening, uh, have some ideas that maybe are specific to Canada, some, some specific resources or organizations or anything that are specific, as I said, specific to Canada, let us know right to us at the geeks at airplanegeeks.com, and we'll add that to the show notes and uh, also pass it on to Celeste. Good luck, Celeste. Oh, I told her to, to keep to keep us in the loop and let us know how she's doing. Yes, yes, absolutely. All right, what's up with the geeks? I got nervous last episode with Micah. We were talking about AirTags, and he mentioned a particular brand of battery and said, don't, don't put those batteries in the AirTags because they won't work. And I started thinking, I'm going to get a letter from Duracell Lawyers uh, asking why we are, you know, passing along this information. So I looked. I, I'm at, surprised you mentioned them. Uh, I, that it. I mean, even now because I just said these because I had just bought some and I thought, oh crap! Now these batteries are useless. And then I went back and said, oh, it's the other guys. Oh, I don't care. Yes. <laughs> so I, I looked into this because I before I finished editing the show last week. So I wanted to uh, figure out if I needed to cut that whole thing out for liability reasons. But uh, as you heard, I did not. And uh, ZDNet has an article. It's it's actually a year ago. Well, it's from last June, 
2022. And the issue is that, and I think he mentioned, Micah mentioned this, for safety reasons, some brands of batteries put a some kind of a bitter coating on the battery so that if a child were to stick this thing in their mouth, um, they would be more inclined to spit it out than to swallow it. So it's a, it's a child safety precaution. And in so some, are parents, supposedly. <sighs> yeah. So this coating, um, in some cases, and at least with the Apple AirTags, which, of course, are fantastic to use for tracking your, your luggage. With them, it's possible that because of this coating, it doesn't make the proper contact, so it won't work. Well, according to the, ZD, the ZDNet article, it's very easy to take care of. Just take some alcohol and, and wipe the battery with the alcohol to, uh, to take that, uh, that bitter coating off, and, um, and then you're good to go. And so I just thought I would pass that along for anybody who was freaking out about how they were going to uh, change the batteries. Oh, hang on a second. I'm getting a call. It's the, it's the Duracell people. <laughs> uh, yeah, what? Oh, they say you're off the hook, man. Uh, Good, thank you. Just thought I'd share that. We should have a battery tasting contest. What do you think? I think that, you know, we could all sample them and let oh, people please. know what our favorite flavor please. is. Well, I was <laughs> tempted. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, what, did, did you see something... Pass in front of Max's eyes just a second yeah, ago. Yeah, tail. There was a tail that just passed there was through a, the... There was a tail, yeah. That's, uh, that's Lily who sleeps in the room here. She's a cat, and uh, I always close the door when I record, so she's stuck inside. So she's telling me, hey, it's dinner time. I went out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, David, do you have anything for us? Well, uh, last week we um, had a correspondent and um, some some feedback saying that how did we get into our aviation lives? And Max Trescott was, wasn't here. And even though Rob threw him under the bus and Russian volunteered him, I bailed, I bailed him out. And I said, okay, I will be the sucker and I will do this. Be the first one to do it. And Max and I talked about this before we record the UAV digest. And both of us went, well, how are we going to do this under five minutes? Because it was going to probably be a two to three hour dissertation. Um, but simply put, um, my road started because of my father. If you are a recent listener to Geeks, uh, my father was a base civil engineer for the Air Force. And I grew up on an Air Force base. We had a squadron of C-130s, and it was the largest reserve base in, in North America. So I had Navy aircraft, Army aircraft, Marine aircraft, Air Force aircraft, and Air National Guard aircraft, all located at the base my father worked at. Um, so when I was in kindergarten, you know, I would tell everybody that my dad has an air base. So... Um, I was always surrounded by aircraft when I went through and I started going through flight school when I was 16, um, never finished it, um, did solo, but then um, I wanted to go into the military, which was my plan after which I was scheduled to go into the Air Force and become a loadmaster on aircraft. Uh, that way I could fly, but not necessarily be able to see with the eyesight or the... Um, and of course, that's when I got diagnosed with asthma. So I got a dismissal from the military 
Then I went to school to study history, um, where I went to college, university, and I came upon studying military history. Worked in insurance for 25 some odd years and eventually found myself doing what I studied to be in university, which was um, a historian. Uh, a lot of that had to deal with me sending a letter back in 29 to an email to these guys doing this dumb show and they were looking for com stuff for content. And I said, you need to do a history segment. And, you know, this guy by the name of Max Flight wrote back and said, great, when do you start? <laughs> um, and that led to other adventures. And eventually I got the job at the American Helicopter Museum. And Max Trescott and Rob talked about not having a four-year degree and experiences. Um, one of the things that... I had was I had a real growing up. I managed a, a hobby shop and I worked in retail through college. And that's actually how I got into the museum was I used my retail experience to get into the museum and then transitioned into doing designing exhibits, etc., and and starting to work in the archives. So it always pays to have a fallback or learning, you know, and having a four-year degree, but um, there's nothing wrong with having multiple skills, you know, and I sold myself to get in the museum by saying, you know, I'm really good at merchandising and I'm really good at dealing with product lines and I've had experience with models and I've had experience with aviation so, yeah, that's basically how I got to where I am. Um, it's kind of a convoluted sort of way, but you that's usually how it happens. You sort of stumble into this stuff. There's very few people I know that actually woke up one morning and said, I'm going to do this, and they've done it. My favorite part is that you told kids that your dad had an airbase. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I would tell everybody, well, you know, my mother was really instrumental in, in getting me to love flying. Now, this is way back in the early 70s. So my mother would take lunch to my father. So we would drive onto the base and my mother would go sit in my dad's office and have lunch. At the time, it was an old farmhouse on the air base and... If you go to whatjustflewby.com and look at the very first post, you you can see a little bit of this story. But this farmhouse was located right next to the Marine flight line. My dad would go downstairs, get me a bottle of Coke, and my mother and father would sit and have lunch in his office. And I would sit on the front porch of this house and watch CH-53s and A-4 Skyhawks and C-130s taxi around the airbase. And... Then my mother, my mother and I would go to McDonald's, and Willow Grove had a lovely area at the end of the runway where you could sit at the end of the runway and watch. So we would eat our hamburgers at the end of the runway and watch the C one thirties that Dad arranged for me to see because that's what he did. We would get there and we'd watch the C-130s taxi up and take off. And the, they were done just for me, weren't they? I mean, because <laughs> that, of course they were. Sure. So I 
was that kid looking through the fence line, except my fence line happened to be a military base. Yeah, I liked what you said, too, about David, about uh, the fact that uh, most people don't map out their careers in, in a lot of details, and that the background or backgrounds that you develop, the uh, the areas of knowledge and expertise that you develop, either in school or otherwise, uh, it kind of all work together to, or can, to sort of facilitate your, you know, your career and your options. I mean, I'll talk a little bit about how that related to my own case later, another episode, when, you know, when I do this. But I always think it's good to think of it as, as background. You, know, you want to make yourself marketable. You, you want to remain relevant. And if you have a broader base of, of different kinds of skills, you know, in that mix, that it, it's going to work to your advantage long term. And that kind of goes back to with, you know, our conversation with or about Celeste and that um, engineering, she's in an engineering program. Um, you know, she may not go from that into an engineering per se position, but she's got that engineering background, that engineering training, and, um, you know, you can, you know, use that to your advantage throughout your career, as with all the other talents that you, you know, develop along the way. All right. So we'll do another one next week, I think. We'll have to see who, uh, who wants to volunteer, and uh, we'll keep rolling with that. Thanks, David. The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australian News Desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran from the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline, 2nd of April, 2023, and we missed April Fools. Yay! Yay, we missed it again. Well, that's good. You know, actually, uh, Grant, as we come into this Australia desk for episode 744, um, April's a great month because it's my birthday in this month, Grant. What have you, uh, I assume you've, you, you know, bought me an aeroplane or something. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've got you something at scale, yeah. And not not just one of the, yes, not one of those little scale ones this time, you know, we, <sighs> we need to up the scale, you know. How about if I buy you an F-111 or an F-18? I could go with that. Okay, can of beer on the way to you. <laughs> yes, you always bring it back to beer, Grant. You're a, you're a master well, at that. It is it is the life's water, you know. Well, I'm sure it is for some. You know, as many people know, I may have mentioned I prefer coffee. Anyhow, Grant, I wonder how they serve coffee on Bonza. Do you reckon Bonza Airlines serves a good cup of coffee? Well, they certainly had a good cup of coffee at their uh, Melbourne airport base opening the other day for those first passengers coming through on the first commercial flight out of Melbourne for Bonza. They now have two bases, one up north in the Sunshine Coast and one here in Melbourne. They're going to have two aircraft at each base. Yeah, interesting. And uh, of course, um, much to the chagrin of people in Sydney yet again, I imagine, because um, they're still not (laughs) flying into Sydney's international airport, but they are flying in here to Melbourne. So that's interesting. And of course, that is part of their philosophy is to take people from... uh, uh, you know, down here in the south where it's, you know, traditionally a little bit cooler. Yeah. Like it was yesterday? Just ask anyone from Sydney. They're always <laughs> picking on our weather. Anyhow, uh, yes, it is a bit cooler down here in Melbourne traditionally. And, of course, uh, Bonza wants to take people way up to the north in Queensland where it's always a lot warmer and much better weather. So uh, a good strategy, I think, and uh, interesting to see them. They did have a big media launch this week uh, at their Melbourne base. Now, as you say, Grant, only two aircraft. It's uh, certainly not going to set the world on fire in terms of uh, being a big dent in Virgin and uh, Qantas. But then again, Virgin and Qantas aren't flying to the same destinations and that's uh, also part of the uh, the Bonza Airlines strategy. I know right they've got four aircraft total two at each base but something's definitely going right because they've sold a hundred thousand in fact over a hundred thousand tickets through their app and uh, yeah we're watching them 
clocked, I think, now 110,000. So the demand is out there. People want to get on the flights. Um, I'm actually thinking I might, especially as we get closer into winter, zap up north for a midweek just for a day or two and, and see what's up there and uh, you know maybe sit, trade the freezing cold for the hot and humid and see what we get. Interesting, Grant. Now, they're selling flights from Melbourne to Cairns, which is a quite a long-distance flight uh, for $79 one way per person. Now, that's obviously not sustainable in the long run, is it? I mean, uh, they cost at the moment, even on Jetstar, it costs considerably more than that. Now, Bonza, of course, uh, have raised a lot of capital to uh, kick their airline off with. They'll be digging deep into those coffers at the moment. But at some point, they're going to have to start, you know, turning a profit. Um, still very early days. They've really only been operating for a couple of months. But uh, how, do you, how do you see that going? How, how long do you think you know, they can run with these really cheap fares. Well, mate, their CEO, Tim Jordan, has said that he wants to target flight pricing at fifty, about $50 per hour base cost. So $79, yeah, okay, that's introductory. So maybe it gets up to around 100 110 That's still pretty cheap to go from one end of the country to the other. So almost, not quite. But let's see how it goes. I mean, it's an interesting question about sustainability. I think, you know, let's see where they're at in June and how they've, they've got lots of bookings for Easter and the school holidays. So that's a good indicator. And yeah, let's see how, how well they go over the next six to 12 months. That'll be, that'll be the true proof of the pudding, as they say. Yeah, and interesting. The other interesting thing too is whilst it might not uh, certainly put a dent in the way Qantas and Virgin operate, you've got to think about some of the smaller locations they're flying into, uh, Rex which is a, an airline regional express that you know traditionally does service a lot of those destinations. I wonder what they'll be thinking of that because uh, their fares are um, quite a lot higher for most of those destinations, at least as we're recording this now. Well, mate, I was just looking at prices to go to Adelaide for the Barossa Air Show that I'm at after Easter, and Rex was actually more expensive than Jetstar for that flight. And so it's it's not always that Rex is the cheapest, and they're operating on the Golden Triangle of Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, whereas Bonds has just gone, nope. We're taking the southerners to the north and some people in the north to various other places. So, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how they go, mate. And and it's a really good question you've got. Are they sustainable? Yes. Well, speaking of sustainable, let's uh, switch over to Qantas because uh, they're uh, going green, Grant. In fact, uh, they've just entered into an agreement with a local company in Queensland to uh, produce biofuel and start running some of their aircraft on it. Jet Zero Australia, um, in partnership with sustainable aviation fuel technology company Lanzajet, and now Qantas buying into it along with... Uh, Airbus, Queensland government, etc. cetera. Uh, this is turning byproducts of sugarcane into sustainable aviation fuel. So 11 years ago, Qantas was saying they were in for the long haul on sustainable aviation. And this is pretty much the long haul, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we actually mentioned that back at that time. Um, you know, we have been doing this uh, reporting on aviation here for a long time. And I, I actually do kind of remember uh, Qantas making that announcement way back at that time. And we we found some links to that uh, as we were doing some research for this segment today. So a long-term project. Obviously, they're going to be using uh, feedstocks such as sugarcane, which is in abundance in Queensland, particularly around far north Queensland. So it really makes sense that, that they uh, do that. And, um, you know, for all of these companies that are talking about going green and, and doing this sort of uh, going down this sustainability route, well, it's it's good to see that uh, Qantas is finally putting some money into that project and uh, really pushing ahead with it. I guess um, probably running hand in hand with their Project Sunrise as well. Well, yeah, mate, it's Project Sunrise is interesting in that, yeah, sustainable fuel will be helping that. Uh, it's, it's certainly getting some some views from people who are saying, hang on, you're taking fewer people longer, so the the carbon that they're generating on those flights 
per passenger is way higher than on flights that would actually stop somewhere because they're carrying more people. Yes, they burn a little bit more fuel, take a bit more time, but they offset per person so much more. And the whole thing of net zero versus true zero, all that kind of stuff, it's quite fascinating when you dig into it. But, uh, mate, for now, moving off sustainability, onto our pet little aircraft, the C-27J, the baby Herc, the one I went for a fly-in. I know you got the real Herc, but at least I got the baby Herc. Oh, you know, Grant, <laughs> that just reminds me of that time I went. Uh, uh, we won't we go, go down that path. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> we now have three seconds to get to minimum safe distance. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, the C-27J, the RAF sent uh, one of them up to take part in Exercise Cope North at Guam. And uh, they were at great pains to point out that uh, although they changed the focus for 35 Squadron to regional support, humanitarian assistance, disaster recovery missions, due to the aircraft not having suitable anti-missile and self-defense and things like that to go into an actual hotspot, they were being used in what we call a warm spot. So they were going up to the fronts, they were dropping off in, um, they were dropping off supplies and so on, much like they do in an HADR role where there's damage from nature. In this case, they were simulating going into an airbase that had had damage from kinetic weapons, i.e. bombs, missiles. <laughs> so they were still going into a warm area, it wasn't directly a hotspot, and pointing out that they're not a civilian operation-only aircraft. It's certainly an interesting evolution of this particular platform. It took the Air Force a long time to find a replacement for the Caribou, which is what this aircraft effectively replaced. So it's sort of evolved from that role where it's basically a battlefield airlifter and and being dedicated to that role. But uh, looking at it and saying, well, actually, you know, this aircraft is a little bit more versatile. It's a bit more modern. And, hey, let's explore some other uh, avenues that we can use it for. And uh, those aircraft are in pretty heavy use already. And it's good to Mm -hmm. see that, uh, you know, the Australian taxpayer obviously is uh, getting their bang for their buck out of it. Yeah, and uh, we certainly saw that to good effect during the bushfires, floods, and uh, in the region when there's been uh, various disasters and so on. But, uh, yeah, it's good to see. We'll uh, like, like Bonza, we'll keep an eye on it. Indeed we will. Well, folks, that's everything we have for you on this week's Australia Desk. Grant, um, uh, you back to the Grand Prix this weekend. Of course, we do have the F1s here. That should uh, be of interest to Max. Oh, it, it has been of interest to Max. He's very jealous because, yes, I spent yesterday in the paddock club. Uh, not the paddock itself, but looking down on it. did go into the paddock briefly uh, when I was doing some pit walks and also going down and uh, visiting one of the garages, which was it was a, an incredible time. Uh, definitely the best experience I've had with Formula One to date, and I've done a lot of corporate and general admission stuff. So it was great. Plus also got to catch up with the roulettes. And was right up on the top when uh, Scotty Tabiner took the Spitfire at high speed straight above pit lane. It was fantastic. That is the coolest thing about having the Grand Prix here. There's always an aviation aspect to it. Of course, the question everybody wants to know is, will your fully restored RX-7, a.k.a. Binky, be out there on the track taking it up to the F1s? Not based on how I was doing in the uh, Formula One simulator yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, until next week, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. Cheers, folks. Did we say we did research? They're going to believe that, aren't they? Well, it's the magic of radio, my friend. (laughs) You know what I like best is how they call each other mate. I think we should do that here on the show. What do you think, mate? It always sounds good, but not if you don't have the correct accent. Well, I I think that's true, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, no hope. The, uh, the Australian Grand Prix was fantastic. Well, from a spectator's point of view, anyway, a um, lot, uh, lot of action, a little bit of controversy, and uh, 
hugely attended the crowds uh, in there in Australia. What was the controversy? Well, there were um, there were three red flags throughout the race, and one of them at the very end with just a couple of laps to go. And so, uh, one issue is you know how they how they handled that. It worked out well for some people and not so well for for others. Good race, you know. I liked. Um, I think um, Grant uh, mentioned um, net zero and true zero, and I had never heard that true zero term before, but I really like it because net zero, you know, it's a little bit suspect, basically, in my in my mind. Um, and we've talked about this, how, uh, you know, a, an, an airplane, let's say, the electric airplane emits no emissions, but that doesn't mean that there are no emissions in the entire process of generating the, in, uh, the, generating the electricity, the energy, um, and just just the whole part of the process. So, uh, I think I'd like to hear more use of the true zero kind of concept because, in the end, that's what really counts. And it and it may remove some of the um, you know sort of uh, marketing hype I think that some companies use when they talk about net zero. But that's a different topic. All right, a couple of shout outs. Um, the FAA has something called the Airport Design Challenge, and I don't know how. Many years they've been running this, but it's been at least a couple, maybe more. But it's for um, um, students, grades uh, K through 12. And it's a design contest, but it's using Minecraft. And so for you older folks out there who might not know what Minecraft is, but um, and, and I'm not even sure I can describe it completely accurately, but it's sort of a simulation environment where you 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 build things in this um, in this Minecraft world, but in any event, um, in this uh, FAA challenge, uh, they're, they're small teams of students. They work together. They learn about local, their local airport. They compete in development tasks using using this Minecraft. And it's I guess it's kind of structured. There's organized lesson plans that cover different topics like airport layout and pavement and lighting and structures and so forth. And it's also uh, somewhat collaborative between the students, the, their parents, and teachers, and that's all done in a virtual environment. So it sounds like a, a really good learning uh, experience for the students. And so um, that uh, that enrollment is um, now open. Uh, it just opened at March, or sorry, April first, and uh, we'll put a link in the in the show notes where you can uh, learn how to sign up and even how to get Minecraft. And uh, it also notes you don't have to be in the U.S. in order to participate in this. And uh, that FAA page also has links to videos of uh, past um, finalists in this, uh, in this competition. So if you've, got, you know, if you've got youngsters who probably already know what Minecraft is in that uh, K through 12 age group, uh, this is this sounds like a really good sort of STEM sort of um, learning experience for them as they design uh, airports for this uh, competition. So I think that's pretty cool. And then Micah sent along uh, an article from The Hill, just mentioned uh, briefly, Emil Bosek is the last Czech RAF pilot during World War II, died um, at age 100. 
He uh, served with Britain's Royal Air Force during the Second World War. He fled Czechoslovakia in 1939. He was just 16. And uh, he went on and he fought the Nazis in France. He moved to Britain. He, he was first a technician, but then he became a pilot in an RAF squadron. Uh, in, uh, in a 2016 interview, he called the Spitfire an unbelievable plane, a perfect plane. And he made 26 operational flights. And uh, interestingly, King Charles III was uh, among those people who congratulated him on his 100th birthday, which was in February. So uh, he just uh, just passed away shortly after his 100th birthday. So we'll just mention, mention that and the article will be in the show notes. All right. Earlier I mentioned we received a couple of uh, emails, um, kind of notable emails, um, this uh, one w- was from Stephen, and we had a conversation last episode about lap babies or holding infants in your or small children in your lap on airline flights. And we were all pretty much in agreement here uh, that that was a bad idea. And why would you want to do that? It's dangerous for the child and so forth. So Stephen wrote us, and, and he has a different perspective, which at first I thought, oh, this guy doesn't get it. But then I, I sort of thought about it more more critically, and he does make some interesting points. But he, he starts out in commenting that this will probably never get read. Uh, but here goes, he said. So Stephen writes, I listened to your episode released last week. He's a former airline employee and current student pilot. He says, I enjoy your podcast and believe it's some of the best airline content out there. Thank you. Uh, I was made a little upset at your commentary regarding the lap infant ban being called for by the flight attendants union. Okay, I'm thinking, what's he going to say? Well, he says, I'm a father of two, and both children in their young age at one time during their infancy traveled as a lap infant on various airlines. I don't have a firm number, but best guess is about six times. Having families spread around the country, we depend on air travel to maintain a demanding full schedule. This policy has allowed us the financial flexibility to make this a reality. I felt like the commentary provided by the geeks was very out of touch for today's young families. Hmm. Then he goes on. Additionally, my son has gained a strong interest in aviation because of these travels. Your specific evidence of the diverted flight did not result in any injury. There is inherent risk to everything in life. He says, my children would be far or in far more danger secured in a car seat inside any car traveling on any road in South Florida. He says, you're, you're asking the airlines, who already took a hit from declining corporate business travel, to now attack the family leisure travel. He says, this is an interesting part. Uh, in, in talking to a few people, I can conclude this would be horrible for airline ticket sales. People will do more family road trips or make different decisions regarding the priority of travel. Just think for a second what you're asking for. A six-month-old child would have to be in their own seat, a seat that the airlines right now cannot guarantee will be next to the parent or at least without an additional fee. I would predict the flight attendants losing membership due to low air travel demands. This is a solution searching for a problem. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Effort should instead be made in better training for pilots to avoid extreme turbulence or investments in technology to detect extreme turbulence further in advance. The best seatbelt is one that doesn't need to be used. And that was from uh, 
from Steve. And, well, let me just say, so um, I responded to uh, to Steve, and uh, we were talking about a couple things. But one of the things he mentioned is he says uh, that he operates an Instagram page with 87,000 followers. Uh, he said, just to test my theory, I made a poll on my page. Now, this is not, I asked him, this is not an, a page on an aviation topic. This is on a, you know, a completely different um, area of interest. So, just to test my policy, I made a poll on my page. 60,000 plus respondents, which is like a huge response rate. That's like almost unheard of in uh, social media. 60,000 plus respondents. And 76% said they would not travel by air on a family trip if their infant required their own seat. I was kind of stunned by that. 92% have taken a lap child in the last two years multiple times. Yes, this is a very small sample size and not any kind of official poll, he says, but this proves in some way my theory mostly correct. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, I mean, we looked at it you know, thinking of from a safety standpoint, but to see that there are so apparently um, so many people that view this as safe enough, I guess, but something that they have to do uh, if they if they want to fly, if they want to visit family, if they want to travel. So a different perspective, and I mean, I still have my you know original perspective, but uh, it's it's a different one. And I think it's always interesting to to think about perspectives that are different than yours and not just, you know, dismiss them out of hand because I think we do enough of that already. Oh, I don't think we dismissed those concerns out of hand. In fact, we, we kind of covered the, the oh, let's be serious. Aviation it markets safety. We run the safest airline in the world, or our accident record is, or our safety record is second to none. And uh, uh, in, it's, it's implied that the airline is safe. And uh, all that we were saying is that for people, and I understand uh, Stephen didn't think we were going to respond to this, but, uh, and I'm not beating you up because you're just up the road from me there, Stephen, uh, in Milwaukee. <laughs> but, um, you know, you don't fly for a living and you haven't seen close calls or anything like that. So we're just saying that from our perspective of people who have spent many years uh, flying airplanes, uh, it's it's a risk that we don't think is worth taking. It Could it be more risky to take a child in a car seat uh, in your uh, sedan uh, into Florida? Oh, sure. I mean, but, you know, it's, it's, it's like saying that I did a poll and 60,000 people. Well, okay, it's how did you ask the question? I, I would like to see that. And uh, I don't know that your Instagram group isn't people who – and I'm not trying to be flippant, but uh, the cheapest people in the world, <laughs> you know, Instagram group. I mean, it's. I'm just saying there there are ways to ask a question uh, to get a uh, to, to get the answer you want. And but I, I don't believe that it it negates the the safety aspect of it. And the best seatbelt is one that doesn't get used. Uh, absolutely true, except. You should still be wearing it. I mean, uh, because you know what? When you need the seatbelt, 
uh, it's too late to buckle it. And um, the, the only way you can look at this is that if somebody's on a lap, uh, somebody's holding a baby on a lap, and the airplane stops suddenly, and they're thrown forward, they're going to squish the kid. Okay? It, now, if you don't think that's a risk, hey, go for it. But imagine this. I'd like to know uh, if it was uh, the pilots and flight attendants years ago that said, uh, oh, we can, you can carry kids on, on board an airplane, uh, you know, so long as they're under two. Or, or was it the airlines that made that decision? Uh, and uh, if they hadn't made that decision uh, and said, no, I'm sorry, to this day, you, you, you bring kids, everybody's got to have a seat. Yeah, we wouldn't be talking about this. So we can talk about the parts that we don't need to talk about, I think, on both sides. But I respect your opinion. I just don't happen to agree with it, Stephen. Mike, uh, uh, brought up an interesting point. Do you guys remember before there were seatbelts in cars? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do, too. And um, David might be a little young, but uh, the rest of kidding? Oh, give do you me remember a break. David? He's older than all of us. My, my, yeah, thanks. Well, my 75 Omega had lap belts. It did not have the Volvo straps. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I remember that there being a, a lot of opposition to, to seat belts. Oh, sure. A lot of people, um, well, it was a popular opinion back then that you were actually safer without a seatbelt because you could be thrown clear of the accident, yeah. you know. Um, People didn't like airbags either when they were first uh, suggested. I still don't like airbags, actually. But, but sure. anyway, that's a separate – because an airbag is – well, what do you call a device that creates a huge amount of gas in a very short period of time? A mother-in-law? A bomb. It's oh. called a bomb. That's what's in your dash is bombs. A mother-in-law. Yeah, really. That was pretty good. Anyway, I'm sorry, mom. My mother-in-law has long since passed, but she'd think that was funny. So, so I took us off. To, so anyway, my my point was going to be that, um, and, and I think Micah was making this point too, is that you know there was a period of time when this seatbelts in cars were viewed by many as not only unnecessary, but in some cases a bad idea. But that's different now. I think for most people, that's uh, that's different now. So I mean, these things do change over time. But if in fact there are a sizable portion of the traveling public, of the flying public, that would not fly if uh, they they couldn't uh, carry their infant and just you know buy one seat, then. That's something for the airlines to ponder. I mean, I think if I think I would want to know uh, in in great detail what the implications of that are. You know, taking Steve's poll on his Instagram as as an example, I I would think that airlines might want to know what's the math look like. You know, and does it make sense for them to think about well, how could they respond to that in a different way other than just saying you got to buy two seats. You know, or you got to buy another seat for the kid. I mean, I don't have an answer for it, but if I was in that business, that would be a topic that I would want to uh, at least understand pretty well, if not start to be thinking about possible solutions. So, Stephen, tell us what your Instagram page is. I'd love to go take a look, even if it's not about aviation. I'd just like to see what your 87,000 followers are following. I just asked him if it was aviation related because I told him if it was, then I we'd give him a plug. So um, I, I really want to thank um, Steve from for writing in. You know, we uh, we haven't gotten any. Well, this was not hate mail. 
by any means. We have gotten hate mail in the past, uh, but not in a long time. No, which ma- makes me wonder if we're not trying hard. I enough. mean, I don't think this is hate. This is no this disagreement is mail. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's great. I, I'm glad. Um, I, I actually, I, I think if I were an airplane geeks listener, and and I knew how many people listen to this show, I mean, and I'm just a student pilot, and I, I don't agree. I think it takes a lot of guts to say, well, you know, guys, I I don't agree with you, and here's why. I don't think most people would do that. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, Stephen, hey, keep it, keep. Well, let's see, keep it coming if you disagree <laughs> with Max. Oh, Either okay. Max or David, <laughs> but just not me because I, I know everything. Um, okay. right, because Rob. my mom told me I did. I'm sure she did. Yeah, she did. All right. That's going to wrap it up for uh, for this episode. We want to thank, thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. The uh, permanent redirect right to the show notes for this episode or airplanegeeks.com slash 744. That's the episode number. And you can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Max Trescott, how do folks get a hold of you? Oh, the usual way. Go to your podcast player and check out Aviation News Talk. And I'll just mention that uh, this week we're talking about two recent uh, airplane accidents that occurred at night in Florida, both of which seemed like they were fairly preventable. So if you want to hear more details about uh, those, check it out. And, of course, if you want to send me an email, just go out to aviationnewstalk.com and click on Contact at the top of the page. Do you have a a source for information that you particularly like for – these kinds of uh, incidents, aviation incidents, or you just sort of pick it up as you can. I, I wish I did. I, I, I just, you know, I check out large variety of sources and I don't think there's any one that any stands one. out in my mind. All right. I was just curious. Yeah. All right. Rob Mark, I know you're a curious kind of guy. Can you tell us uh, where we can find you? Uh, do you mean I'm curious to you? Uh, or, um, no, I'm not being defensive much. Rob, are Uh, you being short? Uh, no, I, I don't think, actually what I'm being is shorter (laughs) every year. And boy, that really (laughs) does not, it's not fun guys. It really, actually, it's a good thing. It means we're all still alive. So Uh, whatever happens, let's just, let's just continue to hang in there. I like that. There's always some practical guy out there. Giving me the side of, you know, can't I just whine when I want? I mean, come on. Anyway, they it. can find us at anything with jet wine tied to it and uh, uh, in the pages of uh, uh, AOPA Pilot sometimes um, and uh, uh, Business and Commercial Aviation and uh, keep those cards and letters coming. All right. Thank you, Rob. And David Vanderhoof, how about you? First, you can find me at the American Helicopter Museum. Um, I'm currently working on an exhibit on, on Igor Sikorsky as a Ukrainian immigrant. That'll be, be appearing in June, uh, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. And you're going to have like a like an opening uh, event for that? We will have an opening event that night, yes. Do you know who I, any participants that you're aware of at this not point? Not yet. Okay. I have not confirmed anybody yet. This show has friends by the name of Sikorsky, so I'm going to try to rope somebody in that way. Good. Were you all done? 
I'm all done. Okay. All right. I, I just couldn't. Sorry. All right. And uh, I'm Max Flight. You can find out where I hang out online by going over to 30,000feet.com. So we'll ask everyone to please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Night, night, everybody. Thanks for listening. 